Welcome everyone to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in this episode, I'm talking to Lisa Hunt about risk homeostasis. The concept of this is that I know that at some point, I think at our symposium, yourself and Todd uh, led a workshop on risk homeostasis theory and possible applications for challenge course professionals. So before we get actually on to risk homeostasis, or have, or as I have lazily put it in my notes, RH, before we get to RH, tell me about R and H. Excellent. Let me add, can I add one premise to that? Sure. Mr. Host, which is that I love at High Five and other places that I've worked that I don't have to be an expert in something to engage in conversation about it. So there are people who study risk homeostasis theory for their profession, and there are books about this. And I am in no way an expert or claiming to be. I'm fascinated by the subject. And my qualifications for being able to talk about it is that I've read a couple books and I've lived for a few years and I've had a chance to observe some things, you know, and uh, Bob Ryan first gave me the book Target Risk. And it's one of my keys to success in life has been if Bob Ryan suggests a book, you read the book. And anyway, so, okay, so the R and the H. Okay. Yeah. So risk, right? I think we can all sort of have our own definition of that. It's not important for this conversation that we have a shared um, definition, but Mm. a lot of the research has been around um, risk as it relates to behavior of humans. So rather than a safety device, it's more of a risk behavior. So how we operate our car, how we engage a certain device, but it's not so much about Um, something being safe or not. It's about the human behavior side of risk. And then homeostasis, other words for this theory as it's become disseminated and argued with and popularized are sort of risk compensation theory. But the the way to think about the homeostasis part of it is um, like a thermostat in your house, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say it's cold inside, you want it to be warmer. So you set your thermostat to 70 degrees And so the thermostats go up and then it stops at that certain um, level. So it's really a system that is static um, and there's different things that need to happen to keep a system static. Maybe you can think about it in terms of your body temperature, right? There's an average and our body does certain things to keep that average in check. So combined, it's like the behavior that humans engage in that affect our risk systems as people. Mm -hmm. Are there any uh, real-life examples that you can think of that might help people understand the concept? Yeah, I mean, I think that we could get very specifically into the theory of risk homeostasis. Um, The book is by Gerald Wild, Target Risk. It's actually available for free download if anybody wants to reference that. I think in my experience, it's more helpful to expand out and just think, Mm. hmm, how does this concept I'm about to describe apply to us? And I've applied it certainly in my thinking as a challenge course professional, but I think that there's other examples. But here's sort of the general framework that I think about, Mm -hmm. which is when I introduce something that is to help maintain safety or manage risk, 
into a system where I know I'm going to have a certain, as a person, I have a certain level of acceptable risk, right? And each person has their own target risk. But if I introduce something that's going to help keep me safer, I need to anticipate that my behavior is going to go downwards, meaning more risky somewhere else to maintain that homeostasis system. Mm-hmm. So the latest example, and I think that our listeners can probably relate to this, is that I've been really focused on remembering my mask, right? Put your mask on or make sure I have it before I leave the house. Well, I've subsequently forgotten my glasses a whole bunch of times, right? Or I'm making sure that my daughter has her hand sanitizer, but I forgot to pack her a snack. Like those kind of things have happened a lot lately. And for me, that's a very like everyday example of, hmm, I've got a certain level of risks that I'm willing to tolerate. I introduce something into that system, something else is going to go. That's a global example, I think. What kind of applications, what kind of examples in the field of adventure and challenge course programming jump to mind for you? I know the one straight off the bat for me would be potentially the introduction of a grigri um, as an example of something is perceived as being safer, but inherently then you don't uh, respond or, or facilitate appropriately. And then you get lazy and sloppy in your behavior and your belay practice, and then it leads to can potentially lead to more incidents. Are there others? Yeah, there definitely are. And I think to me, the examples in my professional or our sort of shared professional path has really two tracks. And one is the idea, like I just said, when you introduce something new, you have to figure out what's going to go or how that system is going to maintain homeostasis in one's own personal target risk. And I could give more examples of that. The other way that I think it applies, and I'm fascinated by this, is around the idea that when we can introduce something new, a lot of risk homeostasis studies have shown that you can actually have a greatly improved risk record in automobile operating, for example, but it doesn't last long. It very quickly then goes back to a previous data point or even worse. So the most classic example, of course, is when, of course, as if everyone knows this, but, um, is when the country of Sweden switched to left-hand driving, everyone predicted there would be more accidents. But in fact, the studies have shown that safety, the accidents actually were greatly reduced at first, but then after a few months evened out over time, mm-hmm. right? So I think that there's those two. So to, so to address this sort of the Sweden example in my practice, I think it's like when we first started to use Zorbers, uh, the shock pack with the lobster claws, I was sort of in the early parts of my career at that time. And it was sort of like, all right, we've got this new thing. We're all going to pay attention, make sure we clip to the right point, everything. But it didn't take long for the behavior to be like, oh, we've got a shock pack, so we can be a little bit more aggressive and maybe clip less. And I'm not suggesting that that's a practice that I advocated, but that's the human behavior side of it. Like we've got this system to keep my fall less uncomfortable. So might as well use it kind of thing. And I, and then I think that a real application that I see, especially as a technical trainer is I have to always be careful when I'm introducing a new concept what happens to the basics? And you and I, I think, share a common example of when we teach the Munter Hitch. It's a fascinating thing. It's really exciting. It's very simple. People love how it works. I love how it works. That's where I see, and I think other professionals will share this, we see the most unclipped carabiners. Because, oh, I've got this, I've got this exciting thing. 
the, you know, but my normal systems for attaching the device and doing all that, I'm so focused on making sure I've got the munter hitch right that you forget to actually lock the carabiner, which is essential in that particular function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, where does our attention go? I think that there's this uh, interesting balance between taking risks and then being safe. And there seems to be like advantage and disadvantage to both of those parameters when people are introducing, especially in our industry, new techniques and new ideas that they do, you do forget those things, but they're always balanced with this idea that I'm being safer by introducing something. What do you see as maybe like advantages and the costs of risky and safe behavior? I feel like I've never been able to give, and this goes into some thinking practitioner stuff. Mm. I don't think anything can be seen in a static context, right? It's like, you can have all the spotters in the world, but if they're terrible spotters, they're reducing, like they're, it's a, it's a, it's a detriment, Mm -hmm. right? It's costing the overall benefit that you're trying to inform. So, and I think in terms of the advanced technical work, like the level two work that a lot of us do, that's something also to be aware of. It's it's very exciting to learn new things, right? Like, uh, you know, and so I have to sort of manage if, I, if I'm showing something to somebody and then other people are going to be like, oh, what's that? Is that the, is that this? And then everybody wants to learn it. I have to sort of assume that the general target risk is going to, like the homeostasis system in my workshop group is going to be affected because people are drawn to the new shiny thing, when it's like, you don't have a cable grab, why are you spending four hours on it? Knowing mm-hmm. that that might affect the way that you do something really basic, like your belay skills, because you're distracted by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I'm not sure, maybe other people who listen to this have expertise in this area. One thing I've been very curious about is once we know about risk homeostasis and how it can affect sort of the general risk level for people, how do we like I have not found that like saying these things in a workshop actually help that much. Like I think that we can improve people's awareness, but if I say, oh, and it's always a problem, people don't lock their HMS carabiner on a munter hitch. If I front load that, I think there's a certain point where that actually becomes unhelpful. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the tipping point is, but it's like I've been reminded of that. So the brain can then mix that up with I've already done it. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's a challenge to be almost like scaffolding the learning in some way that we mm-hmm. don't want to introduce something or we introduce something thinking, oh, they're going to just, that's going to be their only go-to now because they're thinking that this is the this is the one and only because I've shown it this way. There's a consideration about role modeling, both as a trainer for us, but also as people who are training others and people listen to this who train others, the power of some of the information we give can also be a detriment if yes. it's not given that idea of like, this is an addition to, or this could be beneficial if I reference Grigri, but the Grigri's, but I, and I, if I, if a site has them, I'm completely fine with them as long as they also know how to belay with an ATC or aperture friction device. If they've, they've gone through the steps and they don't see that because this is perception, the perception is this is safer, that they can ignore the training that was required for the step below it. Another example that popped into my head as we were speaking was and I recently did a level two exam and I find this all the time that we'll show multiple different ways to perform a gear retrieval at height and then when they do the exam they throw everything in the kitchen sink at this like idea yes. of I'm going to bring in everything I'm going to go up with pulleys and and prussics and you know I've got so much stuff out there 
and multiple ropes that are hanging off me because they're just combining everything and they're not like actually analyzing what does this situation need right now. And that can, that can overcomplicate because now they've got 10 pieces of hardware up in the air that actually makes it more risky for them and less safe potentially if they were to make a mistake and they could have done it so much simpler if they'd have cut out all of the other stuff in it. I totally agree with you, Phil. And I think that that in terms of like risk compensation theory or risk homeostasis theory to me kind of explains that in a lot of ways, the idea of risk management is a very personal thing. Like your target risk is not the same as my target risk is not the same as Chris or Rich's. And yet as a field, especially when it comes to assessment, we have certain things that we need to see from people that don't allow for you know, personal choice in all areas. So I might choose to do a gear retrieval in a certain way because I'm not like more willing to get hurt than you are. I just have a certain like confidence or lack of confidence that has been shaped by my life experience that might be different from someone else. And so I, I think that was another really fascinating thing, learning more about the idea of target risk, which is again, the, the, the book, but the sort of the container for risk theory is around how individualized it is. Mm. Um, And I think that's just, that's a fascinating frontier when it comes to individual risk tolerance, as it relates to standards in the field that we're responsible for assessing. Yeah, it can be a challenge to consider what impact we want to or not have. But I think that the component is there's a human component to all of this. You know, I think, and right. we were talking in a, in a different conversation about horses. I am not a big fan. And my my tolerance of that kind of risk is way less than my wife, who's a big fan and loves horses. So I know that I treat that situation wildly different than, than she does. But it right. does get hard for us because we do have these assessment criteria that we're trying to mark. Exactly. I mean, I would rather break the speed limit and maybe roll through a couple stop signs so that I'm not late for a staff meeting at work because the, the risk of the discomfort and it's not nothing about high five. It's any meeting. I just, I hate being late, but like the, the cost to me of being late, that's a bigger cost than the potential for getting a speed ticket. Right. But that's, again, you can see where that's a personality thing. And yet the speed limit is not subjective. Like, like, I can't argue, well, the speed limit should have been higher because I'm uncomfortable being late. The speed limit's 30, no matter what. And I have to obey that. And if I don't, I have to accept the consequences. Hey, friends, or should I call you my vertical playpen pals? Still trying to get that in somehow, make that a thing. So the reason I'm interrupting this episode on risk homeostasis, thank you to Lisa for introducing me to this uh, topic. But the reason I'm interrupting is because this episode is sponsored by our very own book, which I'm not quite sure is a sponsorship, but I'm going to make it happen anyway. Our book, Tinker, Building Purposeful Experiences from Classic Adventure Activities. Now to you, our listeners, our vertical playpen pals, you can get 25% off this book from now, November 24th, all the way to December 24th. And the way you're going to do that is go to our store, click on Tinker, and when it gets to the checkout, enter the discount code VPP, all uppercase, and you'll get 25% off the book as a thank you for listening to our podcast. And now, back to the episode.
What do you see as being a, like an outcome of us having this conversation for people listening? Like, what do we hope that people are taking away from this? Yes, there is a concept, but what's the takeaway application for them moving forward? I think from an educational perspective, I think what learning more about this theory has helped me do is, as you said, scaffolding. It's sort of like when I'm introducing something new, it's a, t- a technique or a piece of equipment. I have to accept that people need to do a little rearranging in their minds to then make room for that. And it's not necessarily up to them to manage the balance of the homeostasis system, because we, if we, we can't entirely be aware of ourselves, we have to rely on other people to see what we can't see. And so, you know, if you're going to throw at me a munter hitch and a new type of cable grab and a full body harness with a dorsal clip, I don't care that I've been doing this for a little bit of time. I'm hoping that somebody assumes that I'm going to make a mistake. Right. And maybe it'll be like Sweden where I'm super cautious and I'm like dialed into everything. So maybe I'm that kind of person, but then over time I'm going to recalibrate. And then I might have, once I get comfortable with that stuff, I might be more likely to make errors. So I think one is awareness of what happens when we introduce new things. I think two, and this is more of a curiosity, how does constant reminding of things actually impact how people manage risk, right? Don't forget to lock your carabiner. I, I have observed that at a certain point, I think that actually contributes to people forgetting because maybe they're conditioned to me reminding them or it's on their mind so much that they think, and that's come up for me. I've seen so many things about planning your vote, which is great. I want everyone to vote. But I was thinking about that of like, huh, I see that everywhere I look, plan your vote, plan your vote. I wonder if I could convince myself that I've already done it just because I'm seeing so much of it out there. I plan mm-hmm. to vote in person, so I have a plan, but those are some examples. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what was your question? Did I answer? <laughs> yeah, no. I, and then I, I would add, like, I think that there's two things. One, I know people I really enjoy training are those who are over aware maybe or have a have a sense of anxiety about the tasks that I'm going to ask them to do because I know they're dub- double checking and over checking yeah and so they don't ever get to that side of complacency those who have overconfidence in something I tend to find leads to them forgetting those things like the carabiners I remind people who are really confident in the air to do those things far more than I have to remind people who are yeah. just checking because of their own level of risk or their perception of risk like they want to check and i know for me every time i climb at height i'm i always have that feeling of nervous energy around what if something goes wrong so i'm always double checking and triple checking and then with that being said also is to remind people to temper their excitement over the prospect of new gear and equipment that ever comes out i when we teach technical rescues very frequent, not very frequent, but frequently enough do people reference the maybe the Petzl Jag, the the rescue kit that they can buy for a thousand dollars that they can mm-hmm. just set up and go to use. I don't want to. I don't want people to take the 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 nervous energy away from a protocol like that. I think if someone is in a scenario where they need to be rescued, there should be this level of of feelings of risk and fear, and because I do think that tempers us to be able to make smart decisions rather than relying on gear to handle all of our world's ills in that, in that scenario. That's right. And I think that really reinforces that not only is sort of risk tolerance, a personal thing, like risk isn't really a thing until we add humans to it. 
right? It's like, it's really like you can have a sand trap and it's just a sand trap until someone goes and gets stuck in it, which I don't know why that's an example. I've never been in the sand trap, but, but it's really, it's like, how do we use this, the, the device or the scenario? How do we approach it? And again, it goes back to, for me, it's those, what's the cost and what's the benefit of the risky choice or the cautious choice? And it's, I think in any scenario on a challenge course, you can look around and, and make an assessment as to what the combination is. Right. And then Mm -hmm. what are sort of people willing, because sometimes a risky choice isn't necessarily too costly. And I think just the, you know, the other thing in terms of application, and I started this conversation with the example of the mask. I think it's just that there's a very, uh, the idea of managing risk is relevant in new and different ways for all of us as professionals in this field right now. And when us as a training team started to talk about training in person, one of the things I said, and I've gotten more comfortable, so I don't feel like I still need this, but I said, I would like to have a spotter, a colleague of mine who was with me watching me because I know if I'm going to be making sure that people are washing their hands and wearing their masks properly and staying six feet apart, my, like my risk energy is going there. So it's going to take me a while to then like up my muscle, like my risk muscle, if you will, I just made that word up, but, you know, mm-hmm. sort of overall change my target risk so that I can also make sure that the basics are covered, right? Like harnesses are double backed, all that stuff. Cause I just know that when I, ha- I know from this work, when I introduce something new, something else has a risk to not have as much attention. So I think that's a real relevant thing now. And I am very curious, like I wish we were in front of a group where we could just say, how has attention to COVID protocols potentially impacted your technical awareness? Yeah, I would um, I would almost put money on the fact that no doubt because we're checking, um, are we hand sanitizing or masks and what's our distance to each other, that maybe people forgetting to go through uh, an inspection of the climber before they climb. Or maybe they're exactly. forgetting to do the commands because <laughs> they've gone through, they've added all this other steps to it and then they've forgotten some of the steps. Yeah. I would assume that's probably happened to people who are listening to this. Someone else that just popped into my head as well around not only some the way that we operate with this idea of risk, but how maybe some of the actions that we put on our participants could affect their likelihood to take risk. And I think about this in terms of like a tight or a loose belay. Like if I belaying a participant and I'm keeping them on a really, really tight belay, are they likely to do stuff up in the air that could be uh, riskier for them, challenge them in a greater way, or is yeah. a looser belay going to affect that? It's, I, I don't have an answer for that. I just I, It struck me as we were talking that the, I wonder how that influences the risk that the participants are taking, not the risk that I'm taking in belaying, but how it's affecting others by my decisions to either have a loose or a tight belay. Right. I think that that example, to me, very much is played out in belay school. And I think there's that we all have a style to how we teach belay. We also have certain work conditions that probably dictate how we do it. I was working with a very talented group of uh, teacher, public school teachers last month, and they were so surprised that I gave them a couple steps. We did a couple of things. I said, all right, let's get someone to height. And they were shocked. They're like, you don't need us to like, and I said, no, I'm not going to let anybody fail. I said, does anybody feel like they want to try this? Yep. And so again, if you think about cost and benefit, cautious, risky, 
to me, there was a, an extreme benefit in engaging in the quote risky behavior because they were not understanding how a belay system worked. Mm-hmm. And so we had a brand new belayer, me as the backup, a climber went up and they were like, we get it. And then we went on to have a very productive belay school. But I think it's like, that's, or I, it could have been a more cautious approach, right? Like, let's make sure you have it perfect before anybody climbs. And the cost of that cautious approach would have been, it would have taken them a lot longer to learn it. Mm-hmm. So I think in that example, you can also see like, is it really risky? Or is, again, that gets into like, is it perceived as risky? Because of course, we know that we're not going to let a belay fail, right? But they don't necessarily have that confidence that I do. So I think in, in, instructionally, it, this has a big impact in terms of how, how do we let people learn, right? And we're constantly, like, that's why sometimes advanced technical skills is, is tiring for me, not because it's, you know, standing around in the woods with really fun people. It's more like you're constantly assessing each individual's target risk. And you can tell right away if someone is, you know, that that's not true, but you can get a general sense of folks within a day or two of sort of what their relationship is like with risk. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Do I agree with that? I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I think I agree. I think it's, you know, it comes into the facilitation part, but I think that there's no set, even though there are set structures of the way that I teach, I don't know exactly how I'm going to teach until I meet the group and then individuals and how they, how they operate. Like when you say we're going to climb, like, okay, see the faces, like you will be able to quote, tell quite quickly there, their comfort and their, their perception of the risk involved. And that might once again, affect the way that I teach or the speed at which I get someone up there. It is a it is an interesting concept that the amount of power we do have just in the way that we frame something that yeah. how that alters the risk awareness for individuals and the likelihood that they're going to try something. I agree, hundred percent. There's a couple. I don't know if the, this belongs here, Phil, but just if folks are interested in this, like I was. Mm-hmm. If you just do a Google search for target risk, the author of the book, I think there's three different versions of it now, is Gerald Wild, W-I-L-D-E. Um, he passed away last year, but the, his website is very well maintained with interviews he's given. His book is available for free download. And there's, you know, and I think one of the interesting things for me, if I'm really into a topic, I also want to know what's the shadow side? Who are the naysayers? And I, I don't have the expertise to get into that, but this is not an accepted, like industry-wide risk homeostasis is real. Like there are a lot of people who um, disagree with the human element. It's all about uh, the machines. Like there's just a lot of disagreement. So I find that also fascinating. You know, just do a search for risk homeostasis debunked and you'll get a lot of articles too. So whether it's real, whether it's not, I almost don't, it, it is real to me because I've seen it. Like the parts that need to matter to me I'm absolutely convinced of. I'm sure that when I introduce something new and exciting, that's the riskiest part of my day with a group. I know that for me personally, getting used to wearing a mask, I was forgetting other things. Like, I, I, like that's indisputable to me. Something that I think that I can say with at least my own personal clarity in terms of what I've seen. And I noticed, I think this aligns with riscomeostasis is belaying with gloves. I don't particularly like people wearing gloves when they belay. And I know that you can wear, you can buy belay gloves, but the mindset, I think how this aligns to this really nicely is that their rationale is that it hurts their hands. 
that the friction passing through can burn people's hands. My take, though, is that if you don't feel that, how do you know that the rope isn't passing fast? So I think that that the indication of speed and the maybe discomfort that people have on the hand is actually helpful in making people safer. But when you eliminate that sense, that physical sensation that they can experience with the rope in the hands, I think that the detriment, the thing that you lose is the potential for keeping the participant safe. So I think that is an introduction of gear that I don't think is helpful. Yeah, that's a great example. And again, to go back to the word that you introduced earlier of scaffolding, I think that once a belayer has had the time with different climbs, they've belayed on the catwalk, but also on the tower and caught an unexpected fall and a heavy person, a smaller person, all that stuff. And after all of that, they're like, you know what? I think I'd like to try a glove. Fine. But if it's not done after exploring all that, then, you know, we all know the examples of, oh, the glove was too big, it got pinched, and all of a sudden, bling's dangerous. Like, you know, when things happen in our industry, they, you know, there's big ripples. It's true in any specialty industry, you mm-hmm. know? And so, yeah, I think your glove example is a great one, and it applies to a lot of other things. You know, do you want to have a, how do you want to back up your instructor repel, right? Well, first figure out why you need to do that. You know, make sure that both ropes hit the ground, <laughs> Right. Are they clear? And then worry about your prusik, however you want to back that up. Like, mm-hmm. let's focus mm-hmm. on and just to add another plug for I love to read and um, I don't tend to read like full books. I like get the point and then I find other ways like the other people make the point, whether it's in video or podcasting. And another book that's helped me, I think, round out my thinking around this is The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And it's almost like if I could have those two authors, Gerald Wilde and Atul Gawande in a room talking, it would be like an academic dream. The books are very complimentary, but they don't approach them things in the same way at all. I think Atul Gawande is sort of talking about washing hands in a hospital setting. Like, why are the doctors the most resistant? Why are the nurses resistant to reminding the doctors? Like, you get so expert that you abandon the basics. And that to me is risk homeostasis theory. So how do we avoid that? You know, I think because according to the research, I should be probably at the most dangerous point in my career, right? Like I've done things repetitively Mm -hmm. with a good safety record. Like I'm probably due to make a dumb mistake. So I got to keep following the basic practices that work for me, which is why when we introduced, make sure people are six feet apart, make sure they're wearing their mask, make sure that it's like, okay, red flag, introducing new data into Lisa's head. How do I make sure that I'm doing all the other things I'm supposed to be doing? Yeah. And that's a perfect segue into our first ad of this episode. So this episode is sponsored by Trainings at High Five. (laughs) But I think that there's something to, I think you can get complacent when you don't also keep your skills up to date. Yeah. So that's why coming, doing training once every three years is the minimum, what we would uh, recommend in terms of making sure that your skills don't deteriorate. And some, we just did an advanced technical skills. And the first thing I did was belay review. Yes, we were going to be reviewing how do we do technical rescues and gear retrievals and assisted hoist and belay transfers, blah, blah, blah. But I needed to see that they remembered how to belay <laughs> or at least that the skill sets were still good because immediately I identified things that were missing and it's nothing and i've and that's classic it's i've never done a beyond basics or an advanced technical skills and had every single participant belay perfectly mm-hmm. there are things that they miss there are steps that they didn't do there's leg positions that they forgot about there's lowering that's sloppy there's, there's all these different things so i think that that 
there's also there a, a plug for reminding people to do training. Well, uh, thank you for spending the time to talk. The hope of anyone listening is that this just inspires you to start thinking about this in a slightly unique way and look at other things you do in a certain lens, similar to the episode I did about neurochemicals. It's just you sort of, I in, we introduce something and then the option for you as a, as a learner is to take that and apply that to your work in some way. Totally. I did a um, an episode called Real and Fake Jobs. It's like maybe 10 or 15 minutes long. It's just me kind of on a, on a rant about that topic. And I think that some of these concepts are are brought to life in that episode, just in terms of what, what's the impact when we have, quote, fake jobs. That's a whole other thing. But so, yes, we've talked about this before. I'm fascinated by it. Well, when the show comes out, we can put references to the two books, Target Risk and um, The Checklist Manifesto. Yeah, so check the uh, the description for the links to those, and you'll find them there. All right, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Lisa. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try Thanks for getting us a the guy. <laughs>